Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. On our panel today, we have AJ O'Neill. Hey, coming at you live from the Purple Room. Yes, the good old Purple Room. And as our guest, we actually have two guests. Our first guest is Tomer Lichtash. Hi, Tomer. Hi, Dan. And our second guest is David. And I realized that I forgot to ask your last name. What is your last name? Frankel. So David Frankel and Tomer Lichtash. And you're both uh, coming from Israel, right? We're both in Israel at the moment. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, so am I. And I'm the host, Dan Shapir. And now that we've got the introductions out of the way, you know what? You do if you can give us a brief intro about yourself. Who wants to start? Tomer does. Okay, I'll take the challenge. So the challenge of introducing myself. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So I'm a web developer for the past uh, two decades. My background is comes from many disciplines like uh, writing, literature, and more. And I've actually uh, worked uh, worked with you then over at Wix for several years. Anything else you want you want to know? What are you doing these days, Tomel? Well, these days I'm mainly working on the on the project we're about to talk about and uh, looking for my path, my next challenge, as they say. Cool. And how about you, David? I'm a computer programmer. I don't know if there's anything else to add. I've been in the field for uh, professionally for almost 30 years, and I look forward <laughs> to a few more years, hopefully. Um, I'm a uh, working on two or three projects. So I have my, my day job plus some other projects that they are, they are commercial. And there's usually one or two things in the background, which is just for fun. And in the last year, the project with Tomer has stopped the list of the for fun projects. I do have a private life and, and no other, other, but that, I'm not sure it's within the scope of our discussion. Cool. So I ran into Tomer, what is it? I think it was a month or two ago at a meetup here in Israel. And we got to talking yep. because as Tomer mentioned, uh, we used to work together at Wix before both of us left there. And as as we discussed now, I asked Tomer what he was involved with. And he told me about this story, uh, the story of Mel and how he's involved with it and created a project around it. And this really picked my interest because I was actually, I happen to be familiar with the story of Mel, even though it, it's something that I haven't thought about in a very long time. And I thought it would be, a, it's, it's such a great story that it would be worthwhile to bring you both on the show and talk about it, especially given as you've turned it into this entire pro whole project with a website and whatnot that we will obviously link to in, in the show notes. So briefly, can one of you tell us like, what is the story of Mel and why is it that you've got involved with it to such an extent? Well, I'll say it like so. So basically, the story of Mel is a post, an internet post that was published over the internet in 1983. If someone raises an eyebrow, so yes, there was an internet in 1983. It was in the form of uh, discussion groups in a network that was called Usenet. And the story, uh, the post was published by Ed Nather, then an astrophysicist in the Austin, Texas University, who wanted to reply to another post that he found. And the other post claimed that real programmers don't use Pascal. Ed Nather, the author of The Story of Mel, found this argument pretty much distressing and devoted the entire post on writing about real programmers. So he delved 
into another story that happened 30 years earlier. The story where he was hired by a company around the late 50s in California to write the first compiler for Fortran for a first-generation computer, a computer that was the trend on electric circuits without transistors, okay? It was a very primitive computer. And then he met a guy called Mel. And Mel was like this very prolific engineer, application engineer, that was the title back then. And Mel wrote a game for that computer that was a blackjack game. And that blackjack game became so so successful and everyone really loved it. So it was promoted to be like the main demo of the company for that computer. Basically, Mel got a, a task, which was to port the game from the first generation computer to a, a second generation computer. And when he completed to do it and was very proud of himself, he got a request change. And the marketing team requested him to create a small cheat. So the customer, the client, would always win the game. Mel, as a programmer in about 1959, found this request to be very distressful and uh, refused to do it. Long story short, he left the company and Ed the writer of the story of Mel, got the, got Mel's code and was requested to do the same. And then he went through Mel's code and could not figure out how it worked. Because in the middle of the code, there was an infinite loop that did nothing, had no exit, had no terminating condition, no test, as Ed wrote. And it took him about two weeks to figure out how this hack worked. Before you continue yeah. and give the solution, because no, no, I, think I, it... I didn't want to give the solution. I just uh-huh. wanted to conclude, actually. Okay, go for it. I just want to say that the whole story revolves, so to speak, around this hack and around the idea of what a real programming programmer is in the eyes of Ed, who was there in the first moments of the industry. And the entire story carries out more than just this story. It carries out the basic dynamics between marketing, management, sales, developers, computers, innovation. The way I see it, this story tells the the story of the birth of high-tech culture as we know it today, because the the idea of a a hacker and the computer and a a giant system around all this that tries to sell uh, this product stayed from then until today. Now, if I may say another word about the story, the story, as I said, was published in 1983, but survived the, the different changes in infrastructure of the internet since then. A lot of happened to the story. This, for instance, the story was written as a full prose text, but along the way and during to changes in, I don't know, typography standards, spousing standards, the lines were cut and, and created sort of a visual effect of a poem. Now, during the 90s, the the, the author, Ed, uh, remarked that he liked the idea that the text was hacked by the net, as he, as he phrased it. And the whole story just, you know, survived in its new form until today. And it's, it's around the internet in a lot of websites, including you know, Wikipedia, but a lot of websites are, are republishing the story. So we decided to, to republish this story. But as you said, there is a lot more to our project. But uh, this is the, to conclude. What I really, one of the things that I really loved about the story, first of all, like you said, it touches on, on, a, on a whole bunch of things that are still very relevant for us today. Like you said, on the one hand, it's the birth of, of the tech industry, but on the end, you know, people listening to this podcast who are generally web developers, JavaScript developers, uh, might be asking themselves, on the one hand, this story is really old. Like you said, it was written back in 83 about uh, something that happened way back in the 50s. But like you said, Tomer, this really touches on the birth of the tech industry. It has to do with, with hacking. It has to do with the relations between product and developers, between management and between developers. But it also has to do, I think, with this whole concept of a 10x developer and what it ever even means to be a programmer. Because one of the things that you didn't mention, as I recall, is that this story, the catalyst, for the story being written is a, another post 
that was published more or less at, at mm-hmm. the same time. You mentioned it about it, it, it. I think it was titled "Real Programmers Use Fortran" or something like that. That was published mm-hmm. more or less at that time because that time was also the birth time of various other higher-level programming languages. You mentioned Pascal, which was becoming really popular back then, obviously later replaced with more modern programming languages like Java, like Java yeah. and, and JavaScript. But it was Pascal was seen as this example of a programming language that provided higher-level constructs and stuff like procedural programming and functional programming and then object-oriented programming, all this stuff that didn't really exist in those older, more, uh, let's call them basic or even primitive programming languages uh, back in the day. And and as I recall, this story was kind of a reaction along the lines of, you think that Pascal is advanced and that real programmers go down uh, into to the to the hardware and use stuff like Fortran or maybe even assembly language. But, you know, even that is high level compared to how we used to work back in the day. Yeah. The original post, uh, I, I hope that I mentioned it, but uh, the original post was written by a guy called Ed Post. And to my opinion, it was published on uh, Usenet prior to the publish of the story of Mel and there Ed Nader found it. It's custom to attribute this, uh, the publication of this post, uh, Real Programmers Don't Use Pascal, to a magazine called Datamation. But as our research shows, uh, Ed probably stumbled upon this post over Usenet. And yes, it was a discussion that went on about and, and the tension between, I wouldn't call it primitive, I would call it low-level thinking. The idea of a, a computer, which is like a mechanical, almost a mechanical extension of the application uh, engineer rather than like the end outcome of this, of the code written to it. So the original post claimed that real programmers, which is another interesting term, by the way, it's a term that was coined in the 70s in what we call the MIT hacker folklore culture. Real programmer is what we call today the 10x programmer, but it actually refers to a person who knows the bits and bytes of the computer, knows the bits and bytes of the code that he writes, who can, who can manipulate the computer to, to create functions that were not originally designed for it. So the idea that real programmers don't use Pascal was as Ed Nader found it, pretty uh, macho. And that refers to another thing that was a catalyst. In those years, there was a little book, uh, a humoristic book, that's called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, which also... Oh, yes, they do. (laughs) So That also refers, by the way, to another MIT uh, heck of folklore term that's called the quiche eaters. So quiche eaters is like a person who doesn't understand anything about anything. So all that together created this real macho tone over the idea of who is the uh, real programmer and what is the real language and add neither as a person who was who witnessed the idea that the computer runs solely on electricity and you know like diodes as as uh, logic oper- logical operators found this pretty distressing and decided to respond it kind of reminds me in a funny way about some of the arguments and discussions that we see on on platforms like twitter these days about whether or not mm-hmm. html is a real programming mm-hmm. language whether or not CSS is a real programming language, do people who implement stuff in HTML and CSS, should they be considered programmers? And then we see similar discussions about uh, what are web developers and are web developers real developers? You're mixing oranges and tyrannosaurs here because a programming language has a definition. In order to be a programming language, it needs to be Turing complete. HTML and CSS are not Turing complete. They are not, they're literally not programming languages in the same way that my shoes are not bicycles. My shoes have the capacity to get me from one place to another. A bicycle has the capacity to get me from one place to another, but shoes are not bicycles. And HTML has an ability to describe a declarative something that can be rendered, that can go through a process and get a result, but it is not a programming language. May I interject? Yeah, for sure. That's what you're here for. 
Oh, that's wonderful. I'm going to use my uh, this opportunity then. AJ, I, I'll address you like, for personally. Of course, your your answer is, is formally correct, but I doubt that it has any relevance to, to the essence of those arguments, which are really silly arguments, but they're inevitable. And I think I'm guessing that all of us have gone through that phase in our, digi- our digital or programming lives at one, uh, one point or another, <laughs> very, very long time ago. But when people ask about something being a programming language or a programmer, they're asking about the state of mind, let's say the, the intellectual and analytical prowess that is required in order to, to be accomplished in the field. It's basically a question of whether or not you're eligible to join the club. And it's true that you, you can resort to formal definitions, but that completely misses the point as far as I can see, because it's a social argument. It's not a, it's not a formal argument. It's not an argument that eventually leads to accreditation or anything like that. It's just a, a matter of whether or not you, whether or not you well, belong then, to the club. But this is ridiculous. That's like saying it, I could be a cyclist if I can run at least 10 miles an hour. That that doesn't. Well, that, that's that, that, there is a definition to a thing. You can't just change the definitions. You can't just change the goalpost and say, "Well, well, now a programmer is anyone that has an intellectual mindset of of a certain way." First of all, I, disag- I disagree club. because I actually, AJ, I disagree with you on that, and I'm closer to David on this because I do think that you can change the definitions because I think that these definitions are human constructs, and as technology changes we ourselves as humans adapt to it and and change the and do definitely change the meanings of words so again formally you're correct y- yes but they're wrong right like if you if you call a turner a spatula you are incorrect a turner is a turner a spatula then, is a spatula then, then let's let's put, let's put aside the term programming language for a minute and use a much less formal definition, for example, which is the definition of web dev or web developer, okay? Yeah, you can you can be a web dev and, and do HTML because that is part of web development. Yes. That is but, fair. But, yeah, that is fair. But, that then is I, but, then is I, but then I see arguments like if I can build a website using Wix or using web, web Squarespace, am I a web developer? And And I've seen arguments that say yes, and I've seen arguments that say no, and then obviously it becomes a question of of where you draw the line. Like, can you... Well, it's, you know, do you... But, this is kind but, of the difference but, of being a, a mechanic and a, and a salesman. But at the end of the day, the point that I'm trying to get across, and I think that that's also the point that David was kind of saying, is that at, at the end of the day, what I see is that very often this, this form of terminology is used for the purpose of gatekeeping. Like, uh, we belong to a certain club, you don't. Uh, so that makes us better than you or you get out of here. So undoubtedly, people who are using Pascal to program were programmers. So in order to exclude... I, the- I don't even know what Pascal <laughs> is, but I assume it's Turing complete. Yeah. So, <laughs> so just to give, a brief back, to, to give a very brief background on that, Pascal was a programming language created by Nicholas Wirth Way back in the 80s, I think, I need to check on Wikipedia, maybe even the late 70s. It was originally created for the purpose of being a teaching programming language. It was heavily based <coughs> and inspired by the by Algol uh, programming language. Which the is, old Python. Sort of. It was a compiled programming language. It was statically typed. But interestingly, a lot of us got our first, let's call it, uh, intro into real programming using a version of Pascal, which is called, which was called Turbo Pascal, which was connect, created by, oh, I always mispronounce his name, Ander, the creator of C Sharp, Anders Heisberg. He also went on to create TypeScript afterwards. So he created a version of Pascal called Turbo Pascal, uh, and a compiler and an IDE that could run on the old PCs and got us all past basic to actually write uh, code that could compile uh, and run as machine code in, with good performance and use Pascal for that purpose. So it's obviously a real programming language. But the people back then, especially the Fortran developers, you know, they, they had an issue with people who were working at such, let's call it a high-level kind of soft and comfortable environment calling themselves programmers. So they came up with the term real programmers uh, as a macho term, like Tomel said. Uh, and and the whole purpose was gatekeeping. So I, th- I think it was really interesting to see 
this whole the story of Mel being put forth as a way to turn this whole thing on its head. Like you think you're real programmers, well, you guys are nothing compared to Mel. I also want to add, like a side note, that there is an ongoing discussion whether CSS is Turing complete or not, and that CSS is uh, an evolving protocol. So claiming that it is a programming language or not a programming language doesn't really have a, a, a solid stand today. Maybe, you know, 10 years ago when HTML was used to describe a document or 20 years ago, but, uh, but it's, do you know, it's rapidly. not a programming language. This is, this is not, this is not actually, you know, that it's not a but programming AJ, language. You, why would you it, say it, it, it being Turing, if it were Turing complete, we would know it's, it's not a debate. It either is or it isn't. You either can write full expressive programs with, with conditionals and loops. But, but AJ, can, that's, 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 that's just not the point, amazing. AJ. The point is that a lot of people are arguing about this. And if it's really a simple formal question, then you could just write it off as, as a, a, a massive display of, of collective stupidity where people are arguing about something that can be easily settled if you, they would just sit down and read the, the manual. <laughs> but I, I don't think this approach is constructive. I think that this, this approach kind of ties in into what, we, what we're trying to do in the project of Melon. We're tra- still, in a way, trying to figure out what we're doing. And that is the question feels correct. It feels like there is something to discuss there. And the formal definitions don't even come close to, to resolve it or to even, or, or to shed any light on it. And I, what we're trying to understand is what it is, what is it in the essence of programming that people feel so, are so passionate about? And obviously this thing is divorced from the, from the formal definition and much closer to, to the state of mind and to the, the cognitive processes that take place when you crack a problem. So. But this, this is silly. I mean, it's, this something is either, it's either no. something or it isn't. This is not, this is not something where, oh, I, I feel a certain way. Therefore, no, it either is or it isn't. This is not something no, that I, 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 I think, I think you're, mind or, so or you, you know, AJ, I think or, that you're saying something else. You're saying you know, that I, I'm, I'm curious. I think that you're saying that there is a formal question that is easily answerable. And of course, we, we all agree on that. And there is a separate discussion going on using the same terminology, but evidently not using the same deep structures underneath the terminology. And it's it's challenged. Well, then this is no, just ignorance. No, this you, is just you, ignorance. It, it's absolutely uh, ignorance. If, if people don't understand what the words mean, that is literally by I'll try, dictionary I'll, I'll try one last ignorance. time, AJ. Obviously, the words as defined okay. by the dictionary do not match the content of the discussion. However, there is a discussion and it is passionate and sometimes it's held by people who are not on the face of it entirely stupid. So what is going on in their minds? What are they really asking? Forget the... For, Stupid is different than ignorance. <laughs> so, so one way is to just say you don't understand the words, and once you did understand the words, everything would be settled. And another way is to try to re- to relate to the to the strong sensation that there is some essence of programming. And I, of course, I have been feeling it, and I've been in the field because of that ever since I I wrote my first program, even before uh, Turbo Pascal, which was one of my favorite environments. So this is an undeniable sensation, which could perhaps turn out to be a mirage. It could turn out to to camouflage that's a com- complete vacuous content that that means nothing. But it's still, it's much more interesting than just trying to match it with a formal definition. This is my, my last attempt at this. I'll give, I'll, I, I'll I, give think, I think that's the problem I, is that it's interesting. No, but it, it's too but, interesting. AJ, the thing is, is that, again, you've got the, I'll give a different example trying to convey, I think, what our intentions about this or our thought about this. I, I, most organizations these days in the, in the tech industry, the entry-level positions are called junior software engineers. And then they advance to a role of a senior software engineer. Yet, if I look at the formal definition of it, most of them are not engineers. And yet, that's... I, I agree with that. It, this this is uh, ty- uh, job title inflation. And, and I think it's it's been part of startup culture. You can't give somebody enough pay, so you give them a really cool title that they don't deserve that doesn't match what they do. But then a certain bar is set. And the consequence is that if so, if you decide that you don't define somebody as as an engineer, if or put another way, if you do define them as an engineer, if they, for example, develop using JavaScript, but don't define them as an engineer if they create or develop using CSS, then you're creating a certain barrier that directly impacts their ability to make a good income or advance within the organization. 
and not necessarily for the those, correct Those reasons. are separate roles. Those are separate roles. That's like saying if we define someone as an executive assistant versus define them as an event planner, that they might not be able to advance. They're different roles. Are they They're really the different roles? Are they, they really, do you really differentiate between somebody who does mostly CSS and then a bit of JavaScript versus somebody that happens to do mostly JavaScript and then a bit of CSS? Absolutely. One of I them is implementing design and the other one is writing programming logic. Potentially. I, I, strong, I strongly disagree. If you write CSS and ignore the whole aspect of the environment that you're writing in, then maybe what you're saying is correct. But the idea that Dan presents doesn't imply that. It says that you're writing in CSS and doing a little bit of JavaScript and you are aware of the uh, environment you are developing in. So saying that you're writing CSS or HTML or JavaScript is a very outdated idea. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I, I'm sorry. I just, I just don't buy it. I think this is adding unnecessary confusion for the point of what you said earlier, interest, inter being interesting or being cool. Uh, you didn't say being cool, but that's what I would throw this into is if something is cool, people want it. It's interesting. It's cool. People want it. Therefore, you know, they, they want to shift the goalpost so that what's cool can be where the goalpost is rather than what it is. And, and you may be right. People may, ch I mean, dictionary definitions change all the time and they often change to mean the opposite of what they meant, such as uh, awesome and uh, terrible and awful. You know, all these words are kind of synonyms, but they mean completely different things. So I, I agree that it could change. In programmer, originally, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong because I actually don't know the history that well, but programmer was the person who changed the cables between the different ports in order to to create the program, right? And then and then we kind of adapted that and programmer became a turn, but that was Turing complete. Programmer became a term for uh, using punch cards, but that was Turing complete. And then programming became a term for using Fortran, but that was Turing complete. And then programming became a term for using higher level languages, which were Turing complete. And, and there was something that you were programming the computer the whole time in a Turing complete way. You were writing programs, but the methodology by which you did it, and I could see, oh, you're not a real programmer. You use punch cards. You don't use plugs. You're, you're not a real programmer. You use Fortran. You don't use punch cards or, or whatever it is. I get, I get that on a level of people uh, are, are looking at the medium rather than then the abstract, the concept of program. I have to share with you a small anecdote that I found during the research, which is, doesn't concern the story of Mill, but does concern the, the uh, evolving uh, ideas of, and, and the words that represent them. In the late 19th century, there was a group that was called Harvard Computers, you know, and those computers were a group of uh, women who worked with an, uh, in, in an, uh, the field of astronomy and their job title in Harvard was a computer. And those, these computers, they, they were uh, in charge of calculating the mathematical ideas given to them, you know, validating and uh, developing very, very complex mathematical problems in order to aim telescopes and find certain uh, um, celestial targets. Now, these computers, let's just say, ensure that they were not credited for their celestial findings, but the idea that computers were, were people, uh, were a group of women that did some calculating and the idea of computer as we find it today, and in between the entire evolve, uh, the entire evolution of the word programmer, which, by the way, came from application engineer, the whole uh, concept of words seems to be weak. 
seems to be evolving very fast. And to differentiate between HTML, CSS, and JavaScript seems to me like a petty argument because I, you can't really understand one without understanding another. You can write in Hebrew or you can write in English with, without being Shakespeare. That's right. But if you are writing in English and you are writing literature and you don't know about Shakespeare, you can still be uh, uh, called a writer. By the way, before I, you continue... I program in JavaScript every day. By the way... I don't touch JavaScript. I mean, I don't touch HTML or CSS. Yeah, well, I, we'll, get, and we'll get to that in a second. But I just want to mention in the context of, of what you... The example that you gave, Tomer, that there was uh, not so long ago, there was the movie Hidden Figures about the role that... Excellent movie. Yeah, that black women played in in NASA and uh, the, uh, the flight to the moon. And one of the things mm -hmm. that is shown there is exactly that evolution that you described, that oh, at the beginning of the movie, they were literally working as computers, uh, performing their calculations yes. using uh, pen and paper. And then during the movie, amongst other things, they actually became actual, they started actually writing software for the first computers that they got at NASA so that instead of being replaced, they kind of added value to themselves and to the whole project. So that was a really mm -hmm. interesting story in, in exactly the same context. I just want to say one thing before we move on and, and talk a bit some more, I think, about the story of Mel itself, AJ, is that, and it also, I think, came up in that discussion that I kind of missed that you had with Matt Pocock about, about TypeScript in that I think you are kind of slightly different than the norm of, I wouldn't say definitely not all JavaScript developers, but most JavaScript developers, in that you develop using JavaScript, but mostly not for the browser, or hardly ever for the browser, if I remember correctly. I, but my code runs in the browser just fine. It's browser agnostic. What I write is libraries, and you can use those libraries. And I mean, I write applications as well, but a lot of the code that I write, I, I write in the more oh, yeah, say, for, component for, fashion. For, for sure, JavaScript. And so it'll work in the browser just fine. Oh, for sure. JavaScript it's, is If JavaScript. you're looking at the browser as a way to paint a UI, then no, I don't write it for the browser. But if you look at the browser as a virtual machine for running a logical process, yes, I write code for the browser. Well, at the end of the day, and I think we also talked about this in the past in the context, let's say, of discussion about fun functional programming, is that at the end of the day, we uh, all of us programmers care about the side effects at the end of the day. You know, if our code writes but doesn't have any impact on the external world, then then it's then it's nothing. And in the context of web development, that at the end of the day, that means showing some UI to some user somewhere using a web uh, browser. And that at yes. the end of the day means being doing some of the work or mobile app. Or mobile app, uh, but you know, and mobile apps have their own libraries. But again, for the purpose of the, of this discussion, it means that at the end of the day, in the context of a web application, somebody has to deal with HTML and CSS, and I consider that to be a part of the program, and hence I consider that to be part of programming. But let, let's move on, if we can, with that with this discussion. So, sure. getting back to the story of Mel. <laughs> So so there was this really cool story on Usenet that I highly recommend for everybody to read. How did it kind of sort of become this passion thing for you guys? How, how, what is that? What has it evolved into? What did you do about it? Can I start, Tomo? Well, it's mostly going to be you. I, I'm just at, like the hook into this. Among the <laughs> two of us, I came across the story first, I would say about 30 years ago, back in the Tel Aviv University, back when it was still on Usenet and the internet was only, you know, academia and government only, or US government only. And whatever the reason, the story stuck with me. I was, I was enchanted immediately and I, I read many amusing things uh, over time, but that story just happened to stick. And when I entered the, the industry, I discovered that the story was sort of a, a litmus test. Not, I, I didn't use it as a test, but it turned out to be one. You just present it to your peers in the in the group, and those and those who liked it turned out to be real computer guys. Uh, of course, I'm air quoting the the word real, but it does ha does have a concrete emotional sense and. 
it and it never failed. You you go to a place, you 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 circulate the story around. Some people just don't find it interested. Most people don't understand it. And those who who like it and continue mentioning it over time are just a, a certain breed of programmers. I'm not even going to attempt to you know define it, but it's certainly there. So on my very very brief stint at Wix around 2012, I showed the story to to Tomer. We we read it to get, I mean he read it and he apparently well he can take it from there. <laughs> so yes, around 2012, David uh, handed me the story and and told me to read it, and I briefly read it and, and understood that it was interesting, although I didn't quite get it. I didn't understand most of it, uh, to, to, to tell the truth. But the story also stuck with me, and I came back to it again and again, trying to understand the hack, the idea of the hack in that ancient computer that's described in the story. And the more I read it, the more I understood it, but still there was something missing uh, for me. Now, about five years later, you know, coming and going to the story occasionally, five years later, I decided, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, I have this uh, background in literature, I decided to translate the story as a poem. As, as the poem that it is, it, it's, co- it's considered to be the main epos of hacker folklore, the, the, the biggest text, the largest text that survived the, the internet and the, the decades between 1950 to 1980, which is about the years of hacker folklore, the way I see it at least. And as I started to, to translate it, I noticed this, uh, this certain interesting attributes of the text. It was very musical. It was very interesting to read to someone who doesn't understand computers. And those parts that needed a deep understanding of a computer were not clear to me. And I, I, and I hope to get some understanding, but I found myself delving more and more into the technical history of the story, looking over the internet for more and more information. And I found a lot of information. It took a lot of work, but I found a lot of information. And for about five years, I did just that. I translated the story slowly. I read more and more about these old computers. I found the manuals. And after a few years, I showed the translation to David and he actually liked it. And, you know, I showed it to several other people and they they were interested in it. And it gave me the the energy to continue in, in doing it. At a certain point, I had a lot of information about the computer. I had a lot of information about the era, and I noticed a weird a weird fact. As I mentioned, the attribution of the article "Real Programmers Don't uh, Don't uh, Use Pascal" is to a magazine that's called Datamation, and everywhere they said, "Okay, Ed Nader read this article on Datamation and decided to write the story of Mel." But as I looked closer, I noticed that the article in Datamation was published about three months after the publish of the story of Mel, and then I started to get really worried, and I said to myself, "Okay, is it all a hoax? Is Mel even real?" Are those people even real? Is 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 this story? Did this story actually happen? Because there are mixed ideas about it. Some said along the way that these are fictional characters. Some said that this is actual history. What is the truth? And with that question, I went even deeper and I started to contact people around the world. I cont- I and started to get clues about when did the story happen exactly and where and how. How did those people meet? When did Ed meet Mel? What were their backgrounds? What did they know? How old were they when they met? And I got to interview a lot of interesting people. I got to find a lot of interesting findings. Just for example, I had my uh, my brother who lives in LA uh, follow a clue that I found about two years ago. And he followed it and we found Mel's grave in, in a cemetery, Jewish cemetery. I also found the Jewish roots of Mel I also found another interesting fact after speaking with uh, Ed Nader's daughter, Lara Nader, I found that Ed was a professor for in the Tel Aviv University Astronomy uh, Department for about two years in the 70s, a bit before he wrote the story of Mel. And I got this full picture of how the story came to be, which people were involved in the 80s, who were those people in the 50s, where did they come from? And I went even further back and I got to know how Mel came to be. Where did his family come from? What did his father do? Which environment did he grew up in to become such a prolific 
application engineer. Wait, I, was he prolific? I think so. I think that in a word, yes. I think that Mel was a super innovative guy, or as David coined it in his uh, coming article about the hack, a very clever guy who could make the computer go exactly the way he wanted it to go. And in a world of undocumented uh, and uncharted territory, undocumented pro programming standards, there were no standards. There was this giant machine made of about 10,000 diodes, which could go boo if you told it to go boo. And Mel made it go and, and play blackjack. By the way, Mel's blackjack game was so, uh, just to say how prolific he was, because there were there were no screens, okay? There were no displays back then. There were there were no hard drives. Mel's blackjack game was played in MIT computer rooms in special events by students. I mean, this game went around the U.S. in the late fifties and was played by individuals in a world where where you can't imagine. You know that like today you download the game to your phone. As if it was nothing, you just do it. The idea of operating such a giant computer, and it was called a mobile computer because it has it had four wheels under a huge desk that it sat on. It came from the factories, those heavy-duty wheels. So it was called mobile, but it had like a three-part set, and it came with a chair, okay? A chair was part of the set. So I think Mel got the idea of how to make it go fun, which wasn't a trivial idea at the time at all. I have to read a short quote attributed by, to Mel in this uh, story, which goes, if a program cannot rewrite its own code, he asked, what good is it? And I thought that this is such a, yeah. uh, an amusing quote, especially in the context of the fact that we, in a recent episode, we talked about those parts of JavaScript that should be avoided. And at the very top of the list, we gave uh, eval because eval is known to be quote unquote <laughs> evil because it lets you take data in JavaScript and execute it as code. And here he's basically saying that without it, there's really no point in coding. And it kind of reminds yeah. me of this whole concept that these days we have machine learning software that effectively continuously rewrites itself, that these learning algorithms optimize themselves. So effectively, the, you know, you're starting with a certain uh, s a simple uh, sort of a state machine, but it becomes ever more complicated and qu pretty quickly, you don't really know or understand how it works anymore, but it still solves the problems that you wanted to solve. Now, obviously, that's not what Mel was doing, but in many ways, I think it's kind of the precursor. Yeah, David, do you want to address the self-modifying code uh, topic? I think you should. It's fun to romanticize about this particular uh, sentence in the story, and it does indeed hold a lot of uh, promise. I think that Mel simply meant something that which we all do all the time, which is to his only way to push the envelope was to have a self-modifying program. The the practice that have, that became standard years later that the code segment is sacred and, and you're not allowed to, to write into it first as a recommendation and later on is enforced by the operating system. That's something that's simply common sense once, you know, once you once enough experience was gained in, in the industry. But back then, with the very limited hardware that Mel, Mel had, if you couldn't modify your own program, you just had, as far as he was concerned, you, one hand was tied behind your back. And notwithstanding this, which I think is simply a technical thing, the idea of a self-modifying program is, is really charming. It feels like it touches at the essence of intelligence, which is, I think, why very basically, I think, which is why we're very fascinated with it. Oh, yeah. I, I, I just think a lot of these ideas are... Oh, go ahead, Dan. No, I was just saying that the basic concept here for, in case our readers don't exactly... Our readers, our listeners don't exactly follow along, is the concept that in those days, coding was effectively writing a series of numbers. And those numbers might be code and they might be data. And what Mel was doing was effectively using them as both. What that means is that occasionally, you know, the number one might be the instruction to, I don't know, add, perform an ad operation, but it was also the number one. So if you wanted to, you could use that same number stored in the machine, both as an instruction to perform an operation, but then if you kind of 
moved your instruction pointer around, you could actually also use it, as I mentioned, as, as data. And in because you could also write back numbers, you could in this way actually modify the code that was running as as data that you were writing back to the system. And and obviously this is very, very different than how we program these days. But you know, that's what they had. And that's the beauty of it. So when when all you have is bad tools, nobody can blame you for making bad choices. Not b- bad well, well, I I wouldn't they're not even bad choices. They're... That is so they were the only choice. Well it, that's it, it, right. That, yeah. that, but that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, if you but... don't have anything better, then nobody can blame you for picking what's worse. And that's one of the problems in in the political landscape today is when you you know look back in history and consider people that had a limited array of choices and say oh they were bad people because they did one of the two things that they could have done at the time you know but i think i think this whole discussion is is kind of it's a worship of art which is fine but uh, i'm not in personally i'm not interested in software as art I, uh, software is so there's this famous architect lewis sullivan and he has this quote that I think is just so fundamental to to software and, just, and is indicative of the problems that we have with web pages and mobile apps today. Form ever follows function. The function of something is what is most important. It's not the cool part. It's not the interesting part. It's what makes sure that the work gets done. And in the case of programming, gets done consistently, that consistent inputs yield consistent outputs you know, setting date functions and random number generators aside. But if you, if you have co- consistent input, you get consistent output that you can follow a process and you can achieve a desired goal by following the process. Uh, that is, yeah, I understand, I understand what you're saying, but I, <clears throat> but I, but I'm looking at it from a different perspective, especially in the context of, of that particular era. Uh, look at it this way. The Apollo mission got a man to the moon using a computer that's much, much, much weaker than what you currently have in your shirt pocket or your pants pocket in in your mobile phone, okay? And they were only able to achieve that by doing ingenious things. They could have, you know, basically threw up their hands and said, you know, the technology is not there. We cannot get a man to the moon. But that's not what they decided to do. And I, I don't think your Mel's were the people that were working on putting the man on the moon. Well, but it. why not? That's exactly there's a, there's a that's exactly there's a veritasium it. video. That's a very arbitrary. <laughs> but I don't. I think, think it's an arbitrary assertion. I don't think it, it is. You could go either way because you know you you see it. You see the people who put who put an, a spacecraft on the moon as as protagonists. So you try to identify them with your principles, and if your principles happen to rule out the males of the world, then of course you want them out. I don't. I think no. I'm saying that I don't think the people that were at the level of Mel were the people that were yeah, developing yeah, yeah. the spacecraft. I think I it's a miracle that the spacecraft didn't do as the other spacecraft did. Look, what what people did back then and what Mel did is on a certain non-trivial level of abstraction, very commonplace today. If you look at what's been happening with JavaScript since, let's say, 2000 until 2015, I'm giving JavaScript as an example. It's not the best, but I think it's relevant to this forum. If you look at what's people, what people have been doing with the very limited language that was uh, available back in the early 2000s and how people created entire class systems and entire reflection systems and code completion when there's actually absolutely no typing and no and no interface declaration, but still people did that. And the same thing happened with Flash. If you look at what happened, what people managed to do with ActionScript 2 until Adobe was kind enough to, to publish ActionScript Action 3. And there are many other examples. People have been pushing the envelope all the time, though, like on the, as a matter of print. Yes, but this that's the difference between art and engineering. Engineering is trying to create a stable system that is reproducible and spans across people and time. Or that's one definition. We, could, we can argue about the definition of engineering. I, I can concede that my definition that I've presented of engineering is not the the best definition, but but it's somewhere about you're tr- you're trying to get something that is reproducible and that is structurally integral. That and, and that is different from art. So when you when yeah. you that, when you build a building, you can make a building that looks very beautiful and exotic, but it first has to be functional. Otherwise, you end up with a building that's melting the sidewalk because it's concave glass is 
creating a, a laser array that's that's literally frying <laughs> the streets, right? And and you've heard about these things. You know the building I'm talking about, right? I don't remember the name of it, but but this is what happens when you put art in in front of engineering. Engineering must come first, and the art is the flourish that you add on top once yeah, the engineering th- is sound. I think the word art only complicates the entire discussion because in this case of the story of Mel, I think that art is only the reflection of engineering and history. And from history, you can learn. And uh, by being aware to the history of your profession, which may be called programming or engineering or web development, doesn't matter. But the idea that you're not the first to attribute problems that are solved with loops and functions and form. But there wasn't a problem. That's the whole point of the story of Mel, is he wanted to do something that was relatively simple, and he went about doing it in the most complex way possible on purpose, intentionally. Do you think... So you're basically going back to to the, the sorry, but you're basically going back to the argument of what is a real programmer, and and that's the whole idea of uh, that, that I think that story points to to the, in the history of uh, of programming. That real programming is the innovative take on the existing tools in order to take the machine and make what seems to be impossible so, like an infinite loop that does nothing but makes the whole thing stick. But that that is that is an artistic so, choice. Um, no, that, that is that is fundamentally an artistic choice because no, that I was not I necessary. Think, I disagree. But I think the it's story optimal, itself references <laughs> it as an artistic no, choice. No, the story references to it as an optimal mm-hmm. choice. It, it uses the computer resources in the optimal way. I, I don't think so. Then, and that is the then, engineering. Then that's, that. that's, that's really not uh, what I've seen in the story. I'm going to quote, I have often felt that programming is an art form whose real value can only be appreciated by another, another verse in the same arcane art. There are lovely gems and bril- brilliant coups hidden from the human view and admiration sometimes forever by the very nature of the process. You can learn a oh. lot about an individual by reading through his code, even in hexadecimal. What Mel, I think, was an unsung genius. So this that, is poetry. Is one of the most, this is is one of the most beautiful quotes in the story, but let me quote you another one. Mel loved the RPC 4000 because he could optimize his code. That is, locate instructions on the drum so that the, the just uh, as one finished its job, the next would be just arriving at the read head and available for immediate execution, there was a program to do that job, an optimizing assembler, but Mel refused to use it because later it says Mel hated compilers. Mel wanted to beat the compiler. He wanted full control of what happens in the computer. But Tomer, you guys are referring to two different aspects of the story. AJ is completely correct that the hack, which is at the heart of the story, is 100% superfluous. We even address it in the article that we're about to publish in, in the project. It's, of course, it's, it's an act of vanity. And the only redeeming feature is that Mel didn't, never bragged about it. He just enjoyed the hack. He just enjoyed the achievement without trying to, no, to prove anything to anyone. So I think, AJ, can you hear me? Great. So yeah, I, I think you. that I, hear you. I find I, I would love to just continue this for hours because this really touches on the very basic lifestyle and, and choices that are made way, when, when you program computers. Evidently, most, I mean, at least my experience is that most people people in the field, most people who actually code computers are not in it for the function. That is, they don't identify 100% or even 50% with the goals of the organization that hires their, their services. I even may say that we are in it because it is fun, it's rewarding, it gives you many, many moments in which you feel more clever than other people, and you have to continuously have, you have this endless supply of riddles that you solve, it's wonderful. So we are in it for the satisfaction, and the artistic aspect is just an, elev- not just, but it's sort of an elevation of the, of, of the satisfaction, where you really feel that sometimes you touch upon some, some deep truth when you manage to, to combine a huge spaghetti of, of logic into just one concise statement. That's wonderful and it's, it's very satisfactory. And I agree that from an organizational point of view and an industrial point of view, this this may even be a hindrance. And it's the, the constant conflict that you have between product, product and management on one hand and the developers on the other hand, because it's it's more like a, a truce or a ceasefire than than an actual an actual peace treaty. But developers always want to have fun and they always want to explore new technologies. They always want to solve riddles in an impressive way. They want and the company wants something else. 
or or maybe they don't. Maybe they want to produce code. No, no, no. Okay, well. okay. I'm yeah, going to use this reliable. I'm going to use my prerogative as a host and start to draw this discussion to an, <laughs> to an end because we are starting to run out of time. Even though it's an excellent discussion, I will just finish by by saying this. I love writing beautiful code and I love reading beautiful code. And the very fact that I can talk about code as being beautiful means, from my perspective, that there is an, a certain artistic aspect to it. Now, it might not be the most important aspect or it might not even be the main aspect, but it's still, but it's definitely there. And with that, I'm going to draw this discussion to an end because, like I said, we are running out of time and we still need to do picks. But before we, we go there, if, if people want, and I'll mention it again at the end, but still, if people want to read the story of Mel for themselves and also all the research that you guys have done, where can they find it? They can find it on the, the project's website. It's called Mel's Loop. It's written as it sounds, M-E-L-S loop.com. And they, they're also welcome to contribute to the website via our uh, contact form or via GitHub. It's an open source project. And uh, we have a lot of a lot of ideas on how to make it even better until next year, which the story will celebrate 40 years. And that's, uh, that's where we hope that entire research would explode on the website. Very cool. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So with that, let's move on to picks. And AJ, being as you're the only panelist, you go first. Alrighty. So I am going to pick... Louise Sullivan, and I'm just going to link to the Wikipedia article on form follows function. It kind of bugs me because it's actually form ever follows function, but I guess the more popular version of the quote. And with that, just Steve Jobs, one of his, you know, the things that he referenced a lot was his calligraphy class. That was something that just put things in perspective and make things click for him and influence the way that he drove the path of Apple. And in a similar way, I took a humanities 101 class and it it was so foundational. I mean, in a lot of ways, it probably resonated with all, who I already was and just gave me vocabulary and examples and other you know, great, great thinkers that to be able to draw from, to be able to you know, reinforce some of those biases that I that I already have. But I took a Humanities 101, which is where I learned about Lewis Sullivan. And, and I don't really know what humanity, Humanities is. No one really seems to, but it's kind of like somewhere between history, art, and literature all mixed together along with other stuff, art, archaeology, anthropology, and it's it's kind of a survey of what does it mean to be human and what do humans do, I guess. I, I don't really know how to describe what a humanities class is. I don't know if they even exist anymore. But the one I took, we had a couple of different sections. One was on art that I, I found very influential. It talked about avenues of access, the way that somebody comes through a door and what's set up to frame what they're going to arrive at as they travel through that door opposed to another door is intended and does affect the way the person has the experience of arriving at the center piece of art in the middle of the hallway, whether whether they come from the right or the left. And, and also this form ever follows function and a couple of things like this that were just really influential to me in terms of what I believe about programming and, and the art side versus the, the engineering side. And I'm also going to pick Rob Pike's talk Simplicity is complicated. I've got that linked on creedsofcraftsmanship.com or you can look it up by Simplicity is complicated. And I will also post a link to it right here. I think that it's really important. And then um, let's see. I've been watching this show with my wife called The Unexplained. It's hosted by Willem William Shatner and it's on Netflix right now at least. And it's kind of, you know, in the same vein as ancient aliens or a lot of the, the hokey uh, TV shows that are just fun entertainment. But there's also some interesting things. I, I, I think shows like Ancient Aliens and The Unexplained and some of these others, it's not necessarily that you're going to get the best educational content out of them. A lot of the stuff that they present is actually factually 
wrong. They're drawing from old information because the old information is more more interesting, more, you know, has a better spin to it than the more accurate new information. But I just I love the the food for thought that it gives you for some of these things about humans and life and whatnot that we don't have a definite explanation for. So I'm going to pick the unexplained as well. And that's uh, those are my picks for today. Cool. Thank you, AJ. So now my turn. So my first pick is actually, you know, this will probably be old news by the time this episode comes out, but it turns out that uh, we are, it seems like the bubble is bursting. I don't like the term bubble for tech, tech industry, and hence I don't like the term bubble bursting either. But we're definitely seeing a significant downturn in the tech industry. Just today, it was announced that uh, Shopify is uh, letting go of about a thousand people, which are uh, 10% of its workforce. I know a lot of great people there. We interviewed a great person from Shopify about their hydrogen platform not so long ago. I really hope none of the people that I know were impacted. But, you know, what can you do? The only redeeming thing that I can see, compa- I, I've, I've been, I still remember the, the big uh, downturn when the, the, you know, when the dot-com bubble burst back in 2000, 2001, and then the other one in 2008. And the big difference that I'm seeing now is that at least the industry seems to be mostly healthy, that most of the tech companies do have actual uh, products and consequently that uh, people hopefully will be able to find jobs even if they are let go. So that would be my first pick. My second pick is a television show that I recently watched, actually a series. It's a British television show put out by ITV. It's called The Thief, His Wife and the Canoe. It's a really odd name for an unbelievable story that turns out to be completely true. And I very much recommend that if you can watch it, that that you do. It's an amazing story. You won't believe that something like this actually happened in real life and turns out that it did. So highly, highly recommended. And my final pick is the same pick that I always pick, which is the ongoing war in Ukraine, the one that we apparently are getting used to because it just keeps on going. But, you know, we always need to remember that hundreds or even thousands of people are dying there each and every day. And whatever we can do to help, we should. And those uh, are my picks. And now, uh, Tomel, you go. What are your picks? Do you have picks? (laughs) Okay, so I I have two picks. One of them is uh, uh, very obscure, and the other one is uh, way too obscure. So I'll start with the very obscure. I pick a a book that's called uh, Net Pioneers 1.0 by published in Sternberg Press in 2009. It's an anthology of articles and uh, photos of innovative ideas over the web in the early days of the web. And if we discuss hacker folklore, this is like the next phase of uh, of folklore where innovation and artistic approaches meet uh, new standards and, and uncharted territories like early web days and create really wonderful things from scarce materials like forms or lists or stuff like that. The book was published in 2009. It's in English, and I strongly recommend it. And my second pick is the very obscure pick, but I felt that uh, if I have this uh, opportunity to recommend on something that I would recommend on the thing that made me very happy listening to in the recent uh, time, it's, it's an album over at Bandcamp that's called post Google world uh, it's a group of musicians that published about eight part album with crazy wonderful hip jazz music and on that music they read English translations of absurd stories written by a guy called Daniel Holmes which I cannot recommend enough so this is like a great entry into absurd modern Russian literature that you know it would blow your mind I mean it's it's so beautiful that uh, I all I can say is just give it a listen and uh, and enjoy the post Google world thank you Tomel and how about you David do you have any picks for us yes I have I have some picks I decided not to go for things that define my world because that's a it's a tall order so I just picked the things that were on my mind this particular week the first is something that came up when I was interviewing someone for a for a coding job so I would recommend to anyone who likes 
application programming to at least get to know, if not program in the framework made by Microsoft starting something like 15 years ago, no more, 17 years ago called WPF. And it's not the framework itself, but the, the recommendation is to get to know it and then try to figure out why it hasn't, why the thing that was supposed to happen, which was that everybody would be coding in WPF, why didn't, why did that not happen? What does it, what does it tell us about how software evolves and what match there should be between people who actually use, who actually code and software. So WPF is my first pick. My second pick is just a uh, just layer that I... Just before you continue to your second, before you continue to your second pick, just to see if I remember correctly, WPF is like that kind of HTML for building application UIs or something like that, right? It was w- like an HTML-based language for, for specifying uh, user interfaces. The WPF is, is based on XAML, XAML, which is a, a, a variant of XML, but that's just the, the, the declarative part. The WPF is an application framework, which really I don't want to start uh, talking about because about it because then I won't stop. But very briefly, when I came across it, and also other people that I spoke to, the, the sensation was they finally got it right. They finally got an application framework that does everything as you expect it, that ma- manages data and data binding the way you expect it. I, I thought that many other people thought it was perfect, and it was destined to to just take the world by storm, and nothing of the sort happened. So it's really interesting to to look at the process and to also get ideas from the framework. It's just it's it's brilliant. The second pick is just a squash player that I, I watched several times this week, and I'm uh, I'm not enamored with her, but I think she's she's just a wonderful site. Her name is, she's an Egyptian player called Nurat Gohar. I think that currently she's the world number one or number two. And just watch her. It's easy to find many, many clips of her on YouTube. Just watch Nurat Gohar. It's, it's poetry in motion. She's extremely powerful, extremely agile. Just, just look at her. And my final pick is something that was spewed out by the Fortune program on Unix many, many years ago on my terminal. And it's a saying that I, I think everyone should uh, be aware of from time to time. And the saying goes like this. In theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. But in practice, there is. That's it. Excellent. Cool. So before we conclude, if people want to get in touch with you guys, maybe in order to participate in this project, maybe just to discuss some of the things we talked about on the show or for any other purpose, how do how can they reach you? First, there is the contact form over at uh, meldsloop.com. I'm also over Twitter and uh, pretty much reachable through every social network. <laughs> What's your handle Today. on Twitter? It's my full name. Tomalithash. It's very easy to write, just, you know, like 20 characters or so. (laughs) You spell it exactly (laughs) like it sounds. (laughs) Yeah, exactly as it sounds. Cool. And how about you, David? I can be rich to Tomal. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. In that case, thank you very much for coming on our show and telling us about this amazing story. And that's it for today. So thank you and bye-bye. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes, thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.